This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for November 11th, 2019. We all have a fuzzy notion of how the founding fathers of the United States set out to preserve liberty, democracy, and I think apple pie. In this podcast, I talk to someone who thinks that we've strayed from their ideals about the dangers he says that creates. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Here's what we've got coming up for you in this podcast. Yeah, there are a lot of corporate, a lot of big corporations that have a lot of economic power, but uh, and, you and wouldn't, you, have a lot wouldn't of you agree that that economic power can be misused? Uh, I think there's a strong limit to the way that it can be misused as long as there's no fraud or theft. That's coming up shortly, but first I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same... There's details on the website and at the end of the show. I saw a little story from Chicago during the week. Not something that's going to make headline news, but it's interesting. It comes from a City Council budget hearing submission by Library Commissioner Andrea Telly. I told you this is not headline news, but it's interesting. What the Chicago Public Libraries did was abolish fines for the late return of books. You know the sort of thing, you get two weeks to read the book, but if you don't bring it back in time, you have to pay a dime or whatever for every extra day. The theory is that people will be more likely to bring back their books on time if they have to pay a fine for them being late. Well, Chicago said forget it. Bring us back the books when you can. No worries. What happened? The return rate soared by 240%. That goes against what you might expect. Why would so many more people bring back their books when the penalty for not bringing them back was removed? There's a couple of reasons. First, the fines are comparatively tiny and they were only ever likely to be enforced when someone came into the library, probably to return the books. So to a degree, they were more of a deterrent than an encouragement to bring the books back. But secondly, human motivations aren't as simple as that. People often do things for people, not because they have a financial motivation, but because they want to be good people. And sometimes financial motivations just don't work. I'm reminded of a study where a kindergarten set up a system of fines for parents who picked up their kids late. Kindergarten teachers are basically held hostage by parents who show up late because the kids are too young to kick out onto the street. So they said, you pay so much money for every extra minute past closing time that we have to mind your kid. 
Did that make the parents show up on time? No, not by a mile. Quite the reverse. It actually made them show up even later and significantly later. As the authors of the study wrote, the parents regarded the payment not as a fine, but as a fee. And many thought it was a fee well worth paying. And the fact that they were paying for the service meant that they lost non-financial motives to be on time, such as the sense of moral duty not to force the teachers to stay late at work. But what was really interesting was what happened when the kindergarten abandoned the fine system. Did the parents go back to normal and pick up their kids not quite on time but not as late as when they were paying for the extra time? No, it seems that the experience of paying the fine or the fee permanently changed the parents' outlook. Once they saw picking up their kids on time was not a moral duty, but a transaction, it seems that they couldn't go back. Even after the fine system was withdrawn, they still saw it as a transaction, just uh, maybe a better value one. So the introduction of money damaged the social contract. The point here is that not every motivation is money. Even in today's world, people can still be motivated by a sense of duty to people even when they have no real connection with them. Whether it's fighting to defend people you've never met, caring for them as teachers or as medics, keeping an orderly line in a busy cafe, or just breaking to let someone merge into traffic, that sense of duty is literally priceless. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Randall Holcomb. He is a research fellow at the Independent Institute. He's also the DeVoe Moore Professor of Economics at Florida State University. In the past, he has also served as President of the Public Choice Society, President of the Society for the Development of Austrian Economics, and as a member of the Florida Governor's Council of Economic Advisors, as well as a number of academic roles. He's written many books, the most recent of which is Liberty in Peril, Democracy and Power in American History, which was published in September. Um, Randall, I was looking through information about your book, and one thing that I think might confuse some people is that you talk about a tension between democracy and liberty. And I think many people might think that those are the same thing. How do you distinguish between them, and, and what's the tension? Well, let me let me give you a short answer to that. We could talk about that for hours. Mm -hmm. But uh, liberty, we're talking about individual rights. Mm -hmm. And when the American government was formed back in 1776, uh, it was designed to protect the rights of individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, democracy is a little more subtle. But the way people tend to think about it these days is that uh, democratic government is a government that carries out the will of the people. And the way we discover that is through a democratic decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So if we think about democracy that way, that the government's designed to carry out the will of the people, um, it can come in clear con conflict with liberty because a lot of times a majority might not 
might uh, they might choose policies that would violate people's rights. One other thing that you say in your book is that the founders, the founding fathers of the U.S well understood that the most serious threat to human rights and liberty is government. And that could well have been true at the time. It was certainly true if you were under British rule in the United States as it became, and possibly if you were under British rule in many of the other places in the world. But is it still true? Uh, I, th- I think it's true as a matter of fact, but I don't think most people believe it. You know, you, you read but the convince Declaration... Them, then convince them why. Uh, people tend to take a more benevolent uh, view of government these days. Uh, and uh, part of that is a, a change in in the ideology of people. This is true in the United States, but I think it's true worldwide, just in the way that they, they view government. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the United States government was formed, the idea was that will form a government that's designed to protect individual rights. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, most of it is a list of grievances against the King of England. Mm -hmm. He's violated our rights in all these different ways. And so we have the right to form a new government. And so the the ideology up through, well, the late 1800s with regard to government was the role of government is to protect people's rights. Then in the late 1800s, which is uh, the beginning of the progressive era, uh, this progressive ideology has crept in and remained in. And, and the idea there is that really it's an expanded vision of government. Not only is the role of government to protect people's rights, but it's also to look out for their economic well-being. And so people, and so this ideology of democracy, government ought to do what people want, uh, and how do we find that out? Well, through a democratic decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whatever government does, I mean, the idea is it should be looking out for, for uh, uh, people's uh, economic well-being as well as protecting their liberty. And when the government does things, you know, as, uh, anything the government does, there's a kind of a legitimizing effect of this ideology of progressive democracy, that uh, when the government benefits some people at the expense of others, well, it's supposed to look out for people's individual rights. And when it's a democratic government that does that, it's carrying out the will of the people. So we tend that ideology of progressive democracy, we tend to think about the role of government in a different way. Okay. I understand what you're saying. And for the people maybe who are not familiar with it, Austrian economics is a particular school of economics that is very, very much promoting free market economics. I don't want to use the word extreme, but it is certainly on the very far end of the spectrum in terms of condemning all government intervention in the market and promoting absolute market freedom. That'd be a a fair description, wouldn't it? Well, I probably wouldn't go to that extreme, but but I do think the Austrian school of economics, uh, uh, people tend to look at the process by which uh, uh, everybody's economic actions are coordinated in a market economy without anybody planning it out. I mean, there's no central plan or anything. Yes, what we yes. have in our market today, uh, it's, well, I, here's a phrase that I love that Frederick Hayek has popularized. It's the uh. result of human action, but not of human design. So everybody makes their own plans. And what evolves out of that, the market economy that we get, everybody's actions are coordinated, even though nobody's made a grand 
plan. Okay. You, know, you see, and so that that's where that free market orientation comes from is the recognizing you can get an orderly and efficient outcome without anybody planning it out. Okay, I want to compare two different things and see try that out with two different ideas, and the first of those is that. In the 1770s, 1780s, when the United States was being set up, that was just a completely different era. And quite rightly, the Founding Fathers viewed government as the predominant threat to liberty, because that that was true, uh, the King of England at the time. But that's just no longer simply true, because we have many global corporations that are much larger and much more powerful than many governments. And the individual doesn't have the power to stand up to those corporations as an individual. And the idea that Jim Bob can sue Facebook or sue other enormous corporations to vindicate their rights just isn't practical, is it? No, it's not practical to to go up against them. However, you don't have to use Facebook uh, if you don't want to. And so the the difference between the power of government and the power of those big corporations is the only way those big corporations can get anybody's money, the only way that they can survive is if people voluntarily agree to transact with them. So just to give you an example, I hear from time to time, you know, McDonald's is poisoning America with all of that fatty food and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the only way McDonald's can get anybody's money is if they voluntarily agree to give it. Whereas the government takes people's money by force, and yeah, there are a lot of corporate, a lot of big corporations that have a lot of economic power, but uh, and, you and wouldn't, you, agree, wouldn't you agree that that economic power can be misused? Uh, I think there's a strong limit to the way that it can be misused as long as there's no fraud or theft that takes place. Because you don't have to deal with McDonald's, you don't have to deal with General Motors, you don't have to deal with Facebook, because there are alternatives, you know. So General Motors is a big company, they got a lot of power. But, um, but no, hold, like hold, it, hold on, hold on, hold on. That, 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 no, for, no, there's a couple of flaws with that. First of all, where, for example, in the environment or other market moving actions by big corporations, you do have to interact with those companies. You may not be giving them your money, but they can still limit your rights and, and uh, cause you harm. Well, tell me a company you have to interact with so we can be concrete on this. What company do you have? Well, to well let, let's use a historical example. For example, the uh, oil companies and the, the motor companies built uh, for many decades cars that had lead in the gas and uh, you'd have no choice but to breathe the air that had lead in it. And well, without the okay. government saying, hang on a second, this is damaging people and we're going to step in and much as they don't like it we're going to force those companies to change the way they work for the greater good okay and i agree with you on on that example uh i i uh tend to have a pretty libertarian orientation, but I'm not really a libertarian anarchist. Mm-hmm. And there are property rights issues. And for better or worse, at least I'll say even to the libertarian anarchists, it's government today that defines and enforces property rights. 
uh, you know, a libertarian anarchist will say, oh, we don't need government to do that. Okay, maybe we don't, but that's what government does. So the example of getting the lead out of gasoline, well, there's an externality that occurs there, a violation of people's property rights. Mm -hmm. And so the government defines and enforces property rights. That's one of the things that government does. And I'm not against that. Let, let, let me give you let me give you another example in that case. Uh, you may or may not wish to interact with Facebook specifically, but it's very difficult to participate in the modern economy and not use the internet. And the bottom line is that the level of complexity in the economy is far and away what can be understood by one individual. So your right to interact or not interact or give somebody your business or your money is limited by your ability to understand what's going on. And we don't live in 1776 anymore when, you know, pretty much anybody alive could understand any technology that existed. But right now, Facebook, for example, and I don't want to kick on Mark Zuckerberg too much, but many large corporations have an institutional memory spread across thousands of employees whereby an individual customer would have no hope of, you know, having an adequate understanding in order to make a decision on a symmetrical basis with that company. Okay, and and I'll take your argument and uh, try to use it against you. Is that okay? Sure. Uh, if nobody can really understand what's going on, no, no individual can. No individual can. So, but isn't it individuals in government that make government policy? So uh, no, no, it's, no it's, it's a quite a large bureaucracy that divides up the expertise, and any one individual can perhaps have a good understanding of a narrow range of expertise, and that put together can, as is done by large corporations and sometimes is done by governments, can make a relationship more symmetrical and have the potential to be just. But if it's just you, Randall, or just me, William, up against a highly sophisticated bureaucracy that has, uh, you know, people expert in each individual field working together, you can't expect to have an equitable outcome there, can you? Sure. So so your alternative is, because you can't get all the information, would you rather have a private sector organization providing it for you, like Consumer Reports, or would you rather have the government forcing you to do what they think is best? I, I would take the private sector alternative. Does that exist? Yeah, Consumer Reports is an example. So, I mean, I don't know how my car works. I used to know how my car worked back when I was in my 20s, but yeah. they're so complicated these days. But I can buy Consumer Reports. I can collect up information other places, uh, and I can make informed decisions about what car to drive, about whether I want to use Facebook, and if can, I can, do... Can Consumer Reports force a corporation to divulge information? No, and that's the advantage of it. It's no, all no, and, But in many cases, if you don't crack it open and look under the hood or have a team of people who have a, a broad range of expertise look under the hood, you can't understand what's going on. Right, and the government's not very good at doing that. I mean, you, you're... It's better than me. I, 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 so first off, I agree with you, actually, Randall. <laughs> on that, I, you know, I think the government is generally not very good at doing it, perhaps that's not the fault of the government because it is difficult for any large organization to do very, very, very many things 
all of them expertly. And that's a good reason to reduce as much as possible the things that the government are doing. So the things that the government doesn't need to do, it shouldn't do. But there are some and, things and it needs to do. companies have an in- incentive to police themselves because if they get bad reputations, consumers are going to leave them. And, and I'll give you an example. So that, that's from, why there's never from, been any industrial scandals, yeah? Yeah, I'll give you an example just from from sure. current events um, that uh, you're probably familiar with the issues that Boeing has had with its mm-hmm. 737 mm-hmm. MAX aircraft. Well, the certification for those aircraft, the FAA oversees that. They get government approval to to um, uh, to fly the airplanes after they've been tested and so forth. But what a lot of people don't know uh, is that Anybody now, you need to be qualified, but mm-hmm. but anybody can apply to be a designated examiner for the FAA. Mm-hmm. So the FAA doesn't have enough personnel to do the flight inspections, the aircraft inspections. Mm-hmm. So if you, William, want to, you can apply to be a designated examiner. Now you have to prove you're qualified before you do that. Before mm-hmm. you get become a designated examiner, but most of the inspections of aircraft, the certification of aircraft, the certification of pilots, that's done by designated examiners. Now, who do you think those designated examiners are? They are employees of the companies. When Delta Airlines gets FAA approval for their pilots, it's not the FAA, it's a designated examiner. And that designated examiner is an employee of Delta Airlines. When Boeing certifies its jets, it's not the FAA. The main people who are certifying are designated examiners and they're employees of Boeing. Uh, uh, Randall, so Randall, I, I, would grant you, I would grant you that sometimes the expertise is, so, is such that it's difficult even for the government to keep up. And in particular, I'd grant you that Oftentimes, you're dealing with quite a small pool of people who are in a revolving door between the regulator and the industry. But take the overall on that. And since you brought up airlines, we have airlines all over the world. They're normally supplied by a very small number of companies. Boeing, as you mentioned, and Airbus and Bombardier would control almost all of the market. Doesn't matter whether you're in, in the United States or in Indonesia or whatever. But crashes airline crashes are vanishingly rare in the Absolutely. in the western countries now they're vanishingly rare but yeah. not but not using the same technology not in the third world third world airlines crash fairly often less than they used to but still fairly often the difference is the regulation in most of the west you can't uh, you know put a wad of money in an envelope and uh, hand it to the uh, uh, government inspector and have them look the other way yeah no i i disagree with that I, I don't think it's the regulation i think the regulation has virtually zero impact it's the companies themselves who have an incentive to make flying safe it's boeing it's delta it's american airlines why, why does Indonesian Airlines or uh, Malaysian Airlines not have that have that incentive? Well, um, well, they do have the incentive. First of all, well, it doesn't uh, seem to and, work. I, I shouldn't uh, pick on those ones in particular, but the statistics are I mean, that they, third world airlines well, are, are very I mean, significantly more dangerous. Had a couple of a couple of bad. You, you, you're right. I, no, I don't. I don't want lot. to focus on specific airlines, but in in general, third world airlines Some have of the a much African worse. Airlines, some of those African airlines in mm. poor countries, I mean, if you're in a poor country, you mm. may not want to put the same amount of money into maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nobody wants to put the money uh, into maintenance, but they do because they, the government inspector is knocking on their door. 
I don't think it's because government inspectors are knocking on their door. I think it's because if you have too many crashes uh, that uh, you lose your customer base. Okay. I wonder, let's move on from that a little bit. Uh, we don't want to make people too afraid of flying. Austrian economics, and again, people might not know exactly what it is, but it's a kind of a very specific school of economics called Austrian, as in the country in Europe, because a lot of the people who founded it originally came from there. Can I put it to you, Randall, that it is promoted by its supporters, which I guess includes you, almost as if it was a universal principle, something that was timeless and always true. Isn't it possible that it was a creature of its era, that it was formulated really in the 1920s and 1930s in Europe, while you had fascist governments taking over in Germany and Hungary and Spain and Italy and communist governments taking over in Russia. So basically authoritarians all over the place. And Austrian economics was a reaction against that. We don't have that background now. So is it possible that it's not appropriate anymore? I mean, basically, uh, Austrian economics is is based on understanding the way the market process works. Everyone says volu- that. Yeah. Marx said that communism was based on understanding the laws of history. Everybody says that about their pet theory. Well, but, uh, but uh, Marx uh, was critical of the way that markets worked, partly for, oh, largely for distributional uh, uh, issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think. If you look at Austrian economics, if I were to trace it way back uh, before anything anybody said anything about the Austrian school, I think the ideas in Adam Smith are uh, in the Wealth of Nations are consistent with mm-hmm. the Austrian school of economics. I mean, basically, it's a market-oriented school of economics that emphasizes the efficiency of voluntary exchange mm-hmm. and the idea, sort of along the lines of what you were talking about earlier, that. The world is so complex, the economy is so complex, no one person can understand it. Mm -hmm. But if people engage in voluntary interactions with each other, voluntary exchange, you get an orderly and efficient outcome. Uh, uh, But that that voluntary voluntary there, voluntary there means without an enormous asymmetry of information. No, voluntary means people, uh, people agree to the exchanges that they engage in. So I mean, obviously, I mean, when I go to buy, I can have some assurance about what I'm buying, even though I really don't understand the details of it. Okay. Let me ask you then, you obviously view uh, the Founding Fathers as promoting that ideal that they were preserving liberty rather than democracy. And you mentioned it uh, um, since the progressives arrived, that the United States has deviated from that one true path. Are you aware of any country that maintains those 18th century ideals very well as you see it? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, um, I guess my short answer would be no. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, I can think of countries that have um, maintained the ideals of free markets, but at least some of those have more oppressive governments. And, you know, partly I'm thinking of like Singapore and, mm-hmm. of course, Hong Kong that's now part of China. Um, you... Uh, so, yeah, a lot of those ideals have fallen by the wayside. Okay. Isn't it possible that if nobody is doing something, it's because nobody can do it? Uh, it's uh, possible that if nobody's doing something, nobody can do it. I mean, I think in the United States, 
we haven't deviated that far from those ideals. Um, I think we've deviated a significant amount. And one reason that I was interested in writing that book is to kind of shout out a warning. I mean, you, you know, you could make the same type of argument if you went back, let's say, to the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had these Enlightenment ideas that came along. And those Enlightenment ideas themselves had a pretty big influence on economic development. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of technological development and so forth. Um, but that came as a result of the fact that it was profitable to develop technology. And a lot of that's because of the adoption of Enlightenment ideas. So I'd like to try to keep those ideas alive. Randall Holcomb, author of Liberty and Peril, Democracy and Power in American History. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much. I enjoyed our conversation. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook and follow at ChallengingO on Twitter. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate them helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>